Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul established two principles. The first principle was that an idol really is nothing. In other words, it's not like there really is a god Zeus or a god Apollos or a god Mercury. Paul wanted everybody to know that these are just figments of men's imagination. And so an idol is nothing, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. And therefore it's fine for Corinthian Christians who understand this to act according to this knowledge, at least in regard to themselves. But second, Paul established another very important principle, and that is that among Christians, love is more important than knowledge. In other words, you might have the right knowledge that an idol is nothing and say, well, it's fine for me to eat meat sacrificed to an idol, but if eating that meat makes your brother stumble, then you shouldn't do it. Because for Christians, love is more important than knowledge. Even though I may know eating meat sacrificed to an idol is all right for myself, if it causes my brother to stumble, I won't do it because that's the loving thing to do. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9... Paul shows just how important it is for a Christian to give up their rights. You see, just as Paul gave up his right to be supported by the preaching of the gospel, so some Corinthian Christians should sometimes give up their right to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. You see, this is how some of the Corinthian Christians were acting. They're saying, well, listen, I know an idol is nothing, and it's fine for me. I have the right to eat this meat, and I'm going to take that right. It doesn't matter if it makes my brother stumble. And Paul says, no, if you're really following after Lord, the, the Lord, there's going to be occasions where you will yield your rights for a higher good. You see, in the end of chapter 9, Paul shows how a Christian must be willing to give up good things. Yes, some even good things for the sake of winning the race that was set before us, or else we will become disqualified in the competition. That's why Paul begins 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with a simple word, moreover. You know what moreover means? He's going to give us more over the same subject that he's been talking about before. He's still on this subject of eating meat sacrificed to idols, and now he's going to tie together some very complete, uh, some very uh, significant threads. You know, if you just heard what Paul said about eating meat sacrificed to idols from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you'll miss the picture. And by the way, isn't this the place to say that you may sort of already checked out here this evening and said, well, this isn't of much interest to me. Uh, Eating meat sacrificed to idols isn't exactly a burning issue in my life. (laughs) But aren't there things in your life that you do that there are other Christians who would say, "Uh, uh, ah, ah, Christians shouldn't do that. Or maybe you're the one looking at other Christian lives saying, ah, 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 they shouldn't do that. I'm not talking about things clearly defined in the Bible. I'm not talking about, well, you know, um, I think God has given me the liberty to go out and get drunk. Brother, sister, God has not given you that liberty. The Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. It says, don't do that. There's some things that are clearly biblical and unbiblical, but there are other things that are gray areas. There are other things in which the Holy Spirit leaves it up to our conscience. And so you may say, ah, 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 they shouldn't do that. Or other people may be looking at you and saying, ah, 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 they shouldn't do that. Well, this is where it comes down to our life, because eating meat sacrificed to idols was just that kind of issue in the Corinthian church. So, 1 Corinthians 10.1 Moreover, brethren, 
I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, Paul is doing something that you might think is strange. You might think, well, you've gone off on a totally different subject, Paul. Here we are talking about meat sacrificed to idols, and suddenly you've gone off on a history lesson. You want to take us back uh, to study the nation of Israel as it came out of Egypt and before it came into the promised land in this great period that we know as the Exodus. You see, Paul wants them to know that What Israel went through in the Old Testament has direct relevance to where they're at in their day. Now, I think this is interesting because you're aware, aren't you, that it was some 2,000 years before the time of 1 Corinthians that uh, the Exodus took place. And Paul is actually telling these Christians in the first century, he's telling them something that happened 2,000 years ago has direct relevance in your life today. And you know, it's true for our lives too, isn't it? Can I just tell you that right now, what we're doing tonight, it's kind of weird. I mean, if you look at it totally objectively, isn't this weird? Where else on this earth are there people gathered around looking at a 2,000-year-old document and studying it for the relevance in their life today? I mean, it just doesn't happen. I mean, do you think there's people all over this earth gathered looking around at the writings of Julius Caesar? Wow, let's see what Caesar says to us today. Or how about famous philosophers, Aristotle, Plato? Folks, let me tell you, if you know anything about those guys, it's because you had to learn it in college. Let's be straight about it, right? You didn't just say, hey, you know, I'm going to pick up some Aristotle and read them. Now, you might have. There's a few people like that, but let's face it, pretty few and far between. But friends, just as much as what the Exodus could mean to the Corinthians in the first century, the whole Bible is relevant for us today. And Paul wants them to know, I do not want you to be unaware of verse 1, that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, Paul is going to use Israel's experience in the Exodus to illustrate principles. And think of all the blessings that the people of Israel had in this exodus from Egypt to the promised land. First of all, he says, our fathers passed through the cloud. Do you know what cloudy means? He doesn't mean it was a foggy day when they came out of Egypt. He means that they had the Shekinah glory, the cloud of God's Shekinah glory, which overshadowed Israel throughout their journey from Egypt to the promised land. During the day, that cloud sheltered them from the brutal desert sun. And at night, it burned as a pillar of fire. Friends, they had a nightlight provided from God in that desert all the time while they were in the wilderness. And it was a constant ready reminder of God's glory and presence. I mean, wouldn't that be great? I mean, you just look outside. You go outside your tent, look. Oh, good, there's the cloud. At night, you know, you can't sleep. You get up, you go outside. Oh, great, there's the pillar of fire. God's with us. Man, that's a blessing. How about this? It says here in verse 1, 
all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses. All of Israel came through the Red Sea and saw God's incredible power in holding up the walls of the sea so that Israel could cross over on dry ground. And then they saw God's equally amazing work of letting down those walls when the Egyptian army was in the Red Sea and drowning them all. Friends, what an amazing demonstration of God's love and power. I mean, I know what you're thinking here this, this evening. You're thinking, man, if I ever saw something that spectacular, if I ever saw God do something like that, I'd never doubt him again. I'd never sin again if I ever saw God do something like that. I mean, wow, hold up the walls of the Red Sea and just walk through it. Man, that would be spectacular. And it would be spectacular. By the way, John, or Paul wants them to know that it's not only an amazing demonstration of God's love and power, but it's also a picture of baptism. They, check it out, passed through the water, didn't they? They passed through the water. And all Israel was identified with Moses by passing through the water. Well, we're identified with Jesus Christ by what? By passing through the water. So it's an analogy to baptism. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food and all all drank the same spiritual drink. All of Israel was sustained by God's miraculous provision of food and drink during their time in the wilderness. Every morning they got up and there was the manna. Every time they took a drink from the water that was supplied miraculously, they were drinking miracle water. Friends, this was a remarkable display of God's love and power for Israel. And do you realize that it was a prefiguring of the spiritual food and drink we receive at the Lord's table? Isn't that amazing? Then he goes on. He says here in verse uh, 4, For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Well, they drank of that rock. They, They had the presence of Jesus Christ with them in the wilderness. Now, Paul is drawing on a rabbinic idea here that actually the rock that provided water for them followed them throughout the desert. And that rock, Paul is saying, it was a picture of Jesus' presence with them. The point is this, Jesus Christ was present with Israel in the wilderness, providing for their needs miraculously. What blessing, what privilege. But look at verse 5. Despite all of that, but with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Friends, doesn't that blow your mind? They had all these spiritual blessings, all these spiritual privileges, but despite them all, the Israelites in the wilderness did not please God. You see, because of all the blessings, because of all the, the, the privileges, out of gratitude, they should have been more pleasing to God, but they were not. Matter of fact, I, I think it's just amazing. I wonder if Paul's being a little bit sarcastic here in verse 5. Did you just read that in verse 5? He says, but with most of them. That's a little bit of an understatement, Paul. You're talking about millions of adults who came out of Egypt. And do you know how many who were of adult age when they came out of Egypt? you know how many made it in the promised land? Two of them. So most of them died. I'll say most of them. You know, you're talking about 99.9999% of them died in the wilderness. Two out of millions came into the promised land. So most of them perished in the wilderness. And notice, not only that, verse 5, he says, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. 
Friends, the displeasure of God with the Israelites was evident because they never entered into the promised land, but they died in the wilderness instead. For all of their blessings, for all of their spiritual experiences, they never really entered in for what God had for them. And friends, let me tell you, for the Corinthian Christians and for us, the point hits really hard. You see, the the Corinthian Christians were, were taking all kinds of liberties, well, they would go down to the, to the uh, pagan temple and go to a big feast there at the pagan temple. They would stumble their brothers and sisters who had a sensitive conscience towards eating meat sacrificed to idols. They would do all of that and they'd say, hey man, that's cool, I'm safe. I've been baptized. I take communion every week. I've been blessed. And Paul says, let me tell you something. Israel had their own kind of baptism. Israel had their own kind of communion. Israel was blessed, and they died in the wilderness. Paul is warning them to beware, because just as much as Israel was blessed and had spiritual experiences, they still perished. And Paul's saying, so might some of you. Friends, I I look out upon you, and I, I think of our congregation, we are blessed people. God has blessed us. And, and God has touched your life with many wonderful experiences of Him. And we praise the Lord for it all. But if you let that make you sit back and get fat and sassy before the Lord and say, well, you know, I can do whatever I want, sort of. Friends, you're missing the point. You're missing the point entirely. And Paul's saying, listen, look at Israel. Despite all those blessings, they still fell. Now he goes on and he continues the thought in verse 6 and he says, Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things after they also lusted. Now I think this is amazing. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 again and to give you the big picture. And then we're going to go through it piece by piece because Paul is going to tell us several different ways in which Israel failed and how we should not follow in their footsteps. Let me read verses 6 through 10. He says, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor murmur, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Well, what were the ways that Israel blew it in the wilderness during the Exodus, and what should we learn from their bad example? And I just want to say, praise the Lord, don't you know that you can learn from a bad example? You know, if if I can't teach you any other way, I can teach you through a bad example. And say, well, I'm not going to do that. You know, because uh, uh, I can see that that's not the way a person should walk. Now, Israel can teach us through this bad example. And notice what he says here. First of all, he says that we must not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, what was it that the Israelites were were, uh, lusting after? Well, all over you find it in during the Exodus, they lusted after meat. Remember that? God provided manna and manna and manna, and they got sick of manna. They didn't want manna. They didn't want what God had provided. We want meat, Lord. We want meat. And so God sent quail to them. And they were so lusting after this meat that they didn't prepare it in a kosher manner, the way God said. And they grabbed it and they bit into it. 
and it became bitter in their mouth. It just became ick in their mouth. That's a theological word for it, ick. The literal Hebrew says ick. So you get the idea. They lusted after that. They lusted at the golden calf. They lusted when they sinned with the daughters of Moab. Over and over again, they couldn't control their desires. Now, do you see how this is relevant to the Corinthian Christians? The Corinthian Christians who insisted on eating meat sacrificed to idols, even though they were leading other Christians into sin, could not just say no. They said, oh man, that meat's so good, I got to eat it. Or, oh, it's such a bargain, I can't pass that up. But they couldn't say no out of love for God and out of love for a brother. Friends, do you realize that you're never going to be able to go very far in your Christian walk until you can say no to some things? No. I mean, if you're just driven by whatever desire comes into your heart, if you're just driven by whatever desire, I mean, if, if your thing is basically, if it feels good, if you want to do it, then you do it, then you're not saying no to anything. And you're being ruled by your desires, by your evil desires. Can you say no to yourself? Sometimes we need to practice it. Uh, at an excellent pastor's conference one I saw, heard a man speak and he said, well, what you should do is you should go up and just go look in the mirror and look at that guy in the mirror and tell him No. No! And just get used to saying it to yourself. You know, some of us, we never say it to ourselves. I mean, we'll let other people tell us no, but that's not what we want to do, but we won't tell ourselves no. We're ruled by our lust, and we'll do whatever we want as much as we can get away with. Friends, then we're like the Israelites, and it says there that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. But that's not all. Look at verse six. It says, or seven rather, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. You see, Israel failed to keep their focus on God, and they started giving themselves to idolatry. And some of the Corinthian Christians were not only getting too close to their association with idols, they were also making an idol out of their own knowledge and out of their own rights. Well, I have the right to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, right? Uh, I mean, I have the right to have a beer, don't I? Not if it stumbles your brother. And if you cling to your right to do that, even though it stumbles your brother, then let me tell you, your right is your God, not the God who sits in heaven, not the God of love. You see the point here? Idolatry. Then he goes on to say in verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Israel in their idolatry, surrendered to the temptation of sexual immorality. And it says there that they, in the previous verse, they rose up to play. And the very language of that in the original Hebrew has the idea of sexual immorality. And the context here suggests that their sexual immorality was connected with their selfish desire to please themselves, expressed in insisting on the right to do what they wanted to do. And friends, I want you to consider something here. We've already seen this in this letter of 1 Corinthians. Remember in the previous chapters how Paul was nailing them on the issues of sexual immorality? Do you remember that? The same church that was having trouble with sexual immorality was also having trouble with meat sacrificed to idols. Why? Because it was all rooted in the same thing. You know what it was rooted in? Self-will. It was rooted in, I'm going to do what I want to do. I have the right to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. I don't care about my brother. I'm going to do what I want to do. And it's the selfish desire to please yourself 
that has led you off into sexual immorality as well. My friends, don't you see how this is all connected? And that's why Paul brings up this issue of sexual immorality in a context that we might not expect it. But he brings it up nonetheless. Verse 9. He says, nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents, nor murmur. Now this whole incident is described in Numbers chapter 21, where the people were complaining to God, and God sent fiery serpents among the people. And again, their complaining hearts show them to be what? Self-focused. Don't you see how it's all connected? Idolatry. When a person worships an idol, what are they really worshiping? Themselves. Eating meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, The idolatry of your own rights. Worshiping an idol. Sexual immorality. Complaining. What is it all centered in? Self. I want my way. They were self-focused. They were more concerned with their own desires than with God's glory. And the same issues were troubling the Corinthian Christians who would not yield their right to eat meat sacrificed to idols for the sake of another brother. Now notice this. He says here in verse 10, Nor murmur, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed by the destroyers. Friends, I think that some of those Corinthian Christians thought that they were safe, that maybe they had been taught some kind of of, uh, extreme doctrine of once saved, always saved. And hey man, you've been baptized, just go for it. And you know what? Paul would say, listen, no matter what your spiritual experience is, you've got to keep walking. You've got to keep walking with the Lord. And if you really are saved, it's going to be demonstrated by the fact that you keep walking. Don't think that you can just rest and say, well, it doesn't matter how I walk, I'm saved. Paul says, no, if you are saved, you're going to want to walk with the Lord and you're not going to be destroyed. You're going to want to continue on to him. If it happened to Israel, it can happen to you. Be on guard. You see, my friends, I have a theory here and I can't really prove it chapter and verse, but I think it makes sense. The Corinthian Christians, I believe, regarded this whole issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols, they regarded it as a little issue. Come on, this is no big deal, Paul. Look, some people like it, some people don't. What's the big deal? Yeah, yeah, I'm ruffling a few feathers when I eat meat sacrificed to idols. What's the big deal? Paul wants them to know it's not a small matter. It's reflecting a selfish, self-focused heart, and that's the kind of heart that God destroyed among the Israelites in the wilderness. You know, it might have been a relatively small symptom, this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. You know, a small symptom can betray a great, great disease. You've got a little cough, and it just, it's just nagging, it's persistent. And you, you know, it's just not going away. You take cough drops, you take in the cough syrup, and it's not a big deal. You know, it's not like you're debilitated, but there's the cough. It's just there, and you live with it for a week, and then two weeks, and now, well, okay, I'll go to the doctor. And reluctantly, you go to the doctor, and he does the test on you, you've got cancer. What, just from a cough? No, 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 no. The symptom was small, but the disease was great. That's how it was with the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Look, in and of itself, it's a very small issue, isn't it? Yes, it is a small issue. But it can betray the fact that you have a selfish, unloving heart. A heart that's self-focused and not other centered like the heart of Jesus Christ. 
So Paul says, let's sum it up here in verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Praise the Lord. Isn't that a precious verse? Now notice what he says here in verse 11. He says, all these things happen to them as examples. Now, we look at Israel and, you know, and sometimes we do this when it comes to the disciples too. You know, we, we look at them and we laugh at them. Ah, ha, ha, ha. You know, what a bunch of foolish guys. How unspiritual. Boy, we would never be like that. Ah, ha, ha. I tell you, that's one of the things that make me kind of scared about going to heaven. I imagine me getting to heaven and Peter being there. So you laughed at me. You made fun of me, huh? Huh? You think you could have done better? Huh? What about it? I'm sorry, Peter. Because then Peter would say, you know what, buddy? You did worse than I did. And then he'd tell me, and you had my example to learn from. And then I'd be really convicted. See, my friends, all these things were given to us as examples. We can and should take warning from the bad example of Israel. We have a greater responsibility because we can learn from Israel's mistakes. And that's why he says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The Corinthian Christians had to resist the temptation to be selfish and self-focused. And the first step to resisting temptation is to realize that you're vulnerable. If you don't think you're vulnerable, you're not going to resist the temptation. The one who thinks he stands will not even be on guard against temptation. So he's going to fall. You know, temptation works like rocks in a harbor. When the tide is low, everybody sees the rocks, right? And they avoid it. They they navigate their ships around the rocks because they see it. But when the tide comes up, you can't see the rocks. Satan's strategy in temptation is to raise the tide and to cover over the dangers of temptation. Then he wants you to crash upon the covered rocks. Friends, that's what it's like. And, And Jesus Christ wants us to know where those rocks are and navigate around them. So he says here, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as common to man. Have you ever done this? Have you ever tried to uh, excuse your temptation by acting as if it's the most powerful, horrific temptation that's ever come upon an individual on the face of the earth? You know, and I know you have your problems. I know things tempt you, but not like they tempt me. If only you could feel the temptation that I feel. And Paul just kind of grabs us by the lapels and slaps us around a little bit. And he goes, listen, you think you're so unique. You're not unique. No temptation's overtaking you except as is common to man. We want to think we're special exceptions. But God reminds us that our temptation is not unique. Many other men and women of God have faced the same or similar temptations. And they found strength in God to overcome the temptation. You can too. You really can. Look, it's not all that complicated, folks. You can be victorious. 
But you're only going to be victorious in the strength of Jesus Christ, not in yourself. You know, we fight temptation with Jesus' power. One time a Sunday school teacher asked a little girl what she did when she was tempted. And so she says, well, when Satan comes to the door of my heart with temptation, I send Jesus to answer the door. And when Satan sees Jesus, he says, oops, sorry, I must have the wrong house. Well, you know, if you just send Jesus to answer the door, when you feel tempted, it it takes care of it, doesn't it? But when we try to do it ourselves, we're liable to fall. And it goes on to say here in verse 13, No temptation is overtaking you except such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. God has promised to supervise all temptation which comes at us through the world, the flesh, or the devil. Do you understand that, my friends? God is in the business of supervising your temptation. Now, he isn't the author of it. God is not sending temptation your way, but he's screening it. He's screening it. And, and, friends, if Satan could do to you what he wants to do to you, you'd be dust. Isn't that what Satan said to Peter? Doesn't that scare you when you read Luke chapter 22, verse 31, when Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. If Peter knew what was going on then, the biggest chill would have gone up his spine you could ever imagine. But you know what Jesus said? He said, but I've prayed for you. Isn't that great? Jesus is interceding for us right now. And one thing he's interceding for us is keeping Satan back because Satan wants to waste us. He wants to destroy us, but God will not let him. God knows. He knows what we're capable of and what we are not capable of. He will limit the temptation according to our ability to endure it. Friends, do you believe it? Now, when he says that he will limit the temptation, according to our ability to endure it, he does not mean your ability in and of your own flesh. He means your ability as you depend upon Jesus Christ. Friends, in and of my own flesh, I don't know if I could pass by a candy bar. (laughs) But with Jesus Christ in me, I can resist temptation. So when he says that not more than you can bear... When somebody comes to me and say, say, I just can't bear it. The temptation's too great. I think maybe God made a mistake when he wrote 1 Corinthians 11, 13. So you're trying to bear up against it in your own strength, in your own uh, capabilities. No, my friends. God knows what we can handle and what we can't handle. You ever shopping with your kids? And you know, I'm not going to take my kid down that aisle. That aisle would be too tempting for my child. And so we're not even going to go down that aisle. We're just not going to do it. You go down this aisle, and there will be things that will tempt your kids on the other aisle, but that aisle, we're not going down that aisle. Why? Because you're a wise parent. You're going to supervise the the temptation that your child would, would go through. God keeps us from things we can't handle. But now, let me add another point. What you can't handle should be changing through the years, right? I mean, you should be able to handle more and more as you grow in Jesus Christ. If 
you are at the same ability to endure temptation that you were 10 years ago. I wonder how much you've grown in the Lord. Now notice, this is what he says here in verse 13. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God has promised not only to limit our temptation, but also to provide a way of escape in tempting times. Now friends, he'll never force us to use the way of escape, but he will make the way of escape. It's us up to us to take God's way of escape. Now, I know that sometimes in my life when I've been in temptation and I've seen God's way of escape and I've just been waiting for him to compel me to take it. You know, Lord, just force me through that way of escape. And that's not how it works, is it? And let me say this as well. The way of escape isn't the same as mere relief from the pressure of temptation. Do you know how many of us find relief from the pressure of temptation? By giving in to it. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, it's like there's the water against the dam and it's pressing against the dam and I have to relieve that pressure. Well, let's blow up the dam. That'll relieve the pressure. No, my friends. There's often a wrong way to relieve temptation, and we will often face the same temptation over and over again until we can show Satan and until we can show our flesh that we are able to bear it. Do you wonder why you're facing the same temptation over and over and over again? Maybe it's because you haven't shown the devil that you can't do it. You know, I know from playing baseball that when a pitcher knows that he can get you out on a pitch... Let's say he knows he can get you out on a high curveball. He's going to throw you the high curveball all day long until you prove that you can hit it. Now, once you prove you can hit it, he's not going to throw it to you anymore. Isn't that the way it is with Satan? He's throwing you that high curveball again and again, and you're striking out again and again. Why should he change? He's being successful. But once you demonstrate to him that that's not going to work anymore, Satan, he'll try something else. Now, for some people, this is very depressing. Because, friends, let's face it. The way of escape does not lead us to a place where we escape all temptation. You know what that place is called? Heaven. We're not there yet. But can I just encourage you in this? You have the opportunity to do right now something for Jesus Christ that you will never, ever be able to do in heaven. You will never, ever in heaven be able to bear up under temptation and glorify God that way. No way. You're not going to have it. Your life right now is the smallest sliver of time compared to eternity. And God has given you the gift right now in this small sliver of time of being able to resist temptation and glorify him that way. Take advantage of it now. You're going to have all heaven for kicking back. So right now, you're going to face temptation, and that's it. But every time you face it, God will provide for you a way of escape. You know, one Greek commentator says that the word for a way of escape is really the word for a mountain pass. And the idea in Paul's mind here is that there is an army surrounded by the enemy, and then suddenly they see an escape route to safety, and it's through a mountain pass. Now, can I tell you, is that necessarily an easy way? You see, sometimes what we want is the escape shoot. You know, where we just jump and it slides out. And it's, you know, it's easy. 
God hasn't promised us an escape chute. Sometimes it's a mountain pass that's going to take some effort, that's going to take some dedication, but it's a way of escape nonetheless, my friends. And can I point out one other thing, and this touches back on this idea of what depresses some Christians. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Did you know that that's God's goal? Not to remove temptation from your life? That's not till heaven. But God's goal right now is to make you bear up under temptation. Now we're reminded that to be tempted is not sin. But to entertain temptation or to surrender to temptation, that's sin. And when we bear temptation, sometimes Satan condemns us for being tempted. You ever had that experience in your life? Satan condemns you for being tempted, but that's condemnation from Satan that the Christian doesn't have to receive. You don't have to take that. Man, send that back. Return to sender. Delivery refused. I don't need it. Listen, I got enough things to feel guilty about, you know, with the sins I do commit. I don't need that false condemnation from Satan. But friends, please understand, God's plan is for us to be able to bear up under temptation. There's a little boy at a store who was standing uh, in the candy aisle and he was looking at it. And he had his hands in his pockets and he kept moving his hands around funny in his pockets and he had that eye on the candy. And the clerk was just watching him. And the clerk watched him for a long time. And finally the, the clerk said, Boy, looks like you're trying to take some candy. And the boy looked at him and he said, You're wrong, mister. I'm trying not to take any. Well, you know, he was bearing up under temptation. But, you know, let's remind ourselves of something else. God also gives a way of escape. And instead of staying there in front of the candy aisle, how much better to take that way of escape and go out the door and get involved with something else? Friends, God is faithful. And he will not abandon you in your times of temptation. But we need to take that way of escape. And and the Corinthians needed to. So back to this issue of of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Again, understand, in the first 13 verses of this chapter, Paul's been speaking to this issue, but in the broader concepts, the broader concepts of, of not feeling that our spiritual heritage guarantees us anything and that we don't have to be careful and and understanding the need to resist temptation to stand strong and not to be proud in our walk before the Lord but now in verse 14 he's going to come right back to this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols and he says verse 14 therefore my beloved flee from idolatry now in the original language there is an article before idolatry in other words in the original language Paul is saying flee from the idolatry Paul is specifically referring to the idolatry at pagan temples. Please understand this. Paul is not saying in verse 14, flee from idolatry in general. He's saying there is a place where idols are worshipped. Flee that place. I want you to get the picture. And let me paint this as I talked about it last week. This issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols came to Christians in many different ways. You could go to the meat market and buy meat that may have been sacrificed to an idol. A lot of times it was cheaper, and that's why people wanted to buy it. So you could buy it and take it home and cook it. You could be invited over to somebody's house, and they serve the, uh, the ribs. And there's the ribs right there, and, and you wonder, man, was that meat sacrificed to an idol or not? Right? That's the second way it could come up. 
But here's a third way it could come up. There was a restaurant or a banquet room at the pagan temple itself. And you could go there and eat it. Now, you know what Paul is saying here in verse 14 when he says, flee from idolatry? He's saying, listen, Corinthians, you may have the liberty to buy meat at the pagan temple butcher shop and prepare it in your own homes, but you flee from the place of idolatry. You don't go to the restaurant at the pagan temple. And using the example of Israel and their lapse into idolatry, Paul tells the Corinthian Christians not to participate in the dinners served at the pagan temples. Now, why? Why, Paul? Notice verse 15. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. I love the way Paul does. Paul is such a master. I I don't mean to give all the credit to Paul and act as if it's not by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but God was using Paul's intellect and his wit. I mean, when he says, I speak as to wise men, Please understand that the Corinthians prided themselves on what they perceived as their own wisdom. Basically, what Paul's saying, listen, if you guys are so wise, pay attention to what I'm saying. And of course, he knew that, well, of course we're wise, Paul. Well, yes, of course. And so, well, they're going to listen to him. So they speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Wow, do you understand what Paul's saying here? Let's take a look at it bit by bit. First of all, in verse uh, 16, he talks about the cup of blessing which we bless. And then he goes on to talk about, are not those, this is the critical thing in verse 18, are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Friends, Paul's point might seem a little obscure to us, but it was not to the original Corinthians. Just as the Christian practice of community, of communion, I should say, speaks of unity and fellowship with Jesus, so these pagan banquets given in honor of pagan idols speak of unity with demons who take advantage of misdirected worship. Can I just tell you this? What Paul's saying is to eat at a pagan temple banquet was to have fellowship at the altar of idols. You see, here's the idea. When he says there in verse 18, are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? The word partakers in verse 18 is the same word for communion and fellowship. It's the word koinonia. He's saying you are fellowshipping with a pagan altar. You see, in the thinking of the ancient world, to eat at the same table with somebody indicated friendship and fellowship with that person. Since you ate of one bread, that made you one body because you ate of the same food at the same table. So to eat at the table of a pagan temple restaurant was not as innocent as it seemed. So notice what he says here. Verse 19, he says, what am I saying then? 
then an idol is anything or what is offered to an idol is anything? Now, Paul has already said, this is back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that an idol is nothing. So has Paul changed his mind? Is he now saying, well, idols aren't nothing, they're really demons? No, no, that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that demonic spirits take advantage of idol worship to deceive and to enslave people. Without knowing it, idol worshiping are glorifying demons in their sacrifice. And that's why he brings in the analogy of the Lord's table. Look at it here at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Friends, he's using the term the Lord's table in contrast with the table of the pagan altar. You see, in the ancient world, when they would have a banquet or a dinner or a restaurant at a pagan temple, and you went there and ate at that table, it was said that you were eating at the table of Apollos, at the table of Zeus, at the table of that, of that uh, uh, idol. Matter of fact, they've dug up old historical documents. They dug up an invitation of somebody. And it says, a caramon invites you to a meal at the table of Lord Serapis in the temple of Serapis tomorrow, uh, the 15th from 9 o'clock onwards. You see, what Paul is saying, check this out. Does it mean something to eat at the Lord's table? Friends, when we come together to have communion, does it mean anything? Of course it does. Well, if it means something to eat at the Lord's table, then you've got to say it means something to eat at the table of an idol. And that's why he's saying, don't you go into that pagan restaurant. Now, the unwitting fellowship of some of the Corinthian Christians with demons by participating in these dinners would notice it here in verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? You know, God has a right to all of our worship. And if we're giving some of our worship to demonic spirits, God says, I don't like that. Now, it didn't matter that the Corinthian Christians didn't intend to worship demons. Do you think any of the Corinthian Christians walked into those places and said, I'm going to worship a demon today? No. But he says, you're sitting down at the table of an idol. And demonic spirits are using that idol to deceive and enslave people. You're sitting down at the table of demons. Friends, if you put your hand in the fire, it doesn't matter whether or not you intend to burn yourself. You're going to get burned nonetheless. And so Paul is saying, you do not have the liberty to go into that pagan temple and sit down at the banquet table and eat at the pagan restaurant because you are eating at the table of an idol. Now, we might think based on what we've just read that Paul is saying, Don't touch that meat sacrificed to an idol with a 10-foot pole. But let's go on. Verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. You know, friends, you want a memory verse from this chapter? Memorize these two verses. Talk about rules for Christian living. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Now, the Corinthian Christians were very focused on their own rights and their own knowledge. And they would only ask one question. You know what the question they would ask? What's the harm to me? What's the harm to me? 
You know what question they were not asking? What's good for me? All they cared about was what might harm for them. They didn't care about what helped them. Friends, just because something is permitted does not mean that it's beneficial. And the Corinthians were not seeking the helpful things or the things that would edify. Instead of wanting to go forward with Jesus as much as they could, they wanted to know how much they could get away with and still be Christians. Now, here's the other thing. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. The Corinthian Christians were asking one question. What's the harm to me? And as long as they weren't harmed, well, then it's great. But they didn't realize, wait a minute, even if it's not harming to me, it might be harming somebody else. They did not consider how their actions were harming others. Just because something is fine for me does not mean I should do it. My own rights, or what I know to be permitted for myself, are not the standards by which I judge my behavior. Friends, I must consider what is the loving thing to do towards my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. All right, now do you want to get down to the flat-out issue here? Here we go, verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no question for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's in, in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Huh. Friends, Paul just got through blasting the Corinthians for eating meat sacrificed to idols in the pagan temple. And basically, he said, you do that, you're having fellowship with demons. Pretty strong, right? And then he comes around and he says, but you know what? If you want to buy that meat and eat it at your house, fine. Go ahead. Eat whatever's sold in the meat market. Now, we say... Paul, what are you talking about? Just a minute before you said, if I'm eating it in the pagan restaurant, I can't eat it. But I can eat it at home? And Paul says, yeah. He says, listen, it's not like the meat itself is bad. He says, it's not like it's infected with some uh, demon uh, cooties or something. Come on. Paul says, nothing wrong with the meat. Matter of fact, look at it in verse 26. He says, the earth is the Lord's and all of it and, and, uh, and all its fullness. He says, listen, any religious character that that offering had, it's lost when you get it from the butcher shop. Paul is telling them, don't have anything to do with the atmosphere of fellowship with demons at the pagan temple. That's to be avoided, not the food itself. He says, listen, the food itself is fine. But, he says, don't you go to the atmosphere of that pagan temple. Now, you know, this has real relevance. And let me just bring up an issue, and I really hesitate to bring up an issue to illustrate this for two reasons. First of all, uh, some of you who may have a difficulty with this issue may feel that I'm picking on you. But hey, if the shoe fits, wear it. 
But the other thing is, is that you may think that this principle only applies to this one specific instance. It does not. It applies across to a whole, whole broad span of gray area things. But let me just give you one idea so that you understand how this works. Take the issue of dancing. Now, for some Christians, it's like, oh, man, you can't dance if you're a Christian. No way. You can't have a dancing foot and a praying knee on the same leg, they'll say. There's no way you can do it. You dance straight to hell, buddy. There's other Christians go, hey, man, who cares? I'll dance. It's no big deal. Now, listen, can you understand how Paul might very well say the act of dancing isn't the problem? But you better watch the atmosphere of the place where you go do it. Paul's saying the atmosphere of fellowship with demons in the pagan temple, you don't have anything to do with that. Because if you want to buy the meat and take it to your own house and have a barbecue, go for it. Who cares? It's not like the meat itself is infected with demons. It's not like the dancing itself is infected with some kind of spiritual cooties. But you have to be aware of the atmosphere. So do you see how you could err on both ends? You could say, well, you know, no dancing, no dancing. Or you could say, hey, man, I can dance whenever I want, wherever I want. And it's fine. No, not necessarily. You know, and that's why, because there can be such a broad span that God doesn't give us any hard and fast command. He gives us principles that the Holy Spirit applies to our heart, doesn't he? Now notice what he goes on to say. Verse 25, eat whatever's sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. He goes, when you go to the butcher shop and you see the meat there, he says, don't even ask if it was sacrificed to an idol. You know, you see two roasts in front of you. You go, oh man, this one's on sale and this one's not. Oh man, I bet the one on sale was sacrificed to an idol. Should I ask? Where did he get the meat? Man, maybe he got the temple. Does it? And he goes, Paul says, you know what, man? Don't even ask. Just buy it. And you won't even know. You see, the idea is you're not going to partake of the atmosphere of the pagan temple, so it doesn't matter. Don't even ask and it won't even bother you. Now, what if one of the brothers with a weak conscience, objects, saying, wait a minute, Paul. I mean, that meek would satisfy, was sacrificed to an idol, and they're going to take it home and eat it. And, you know, some of the spirit of Zeus is going to go in their body when they eat it. You know what Paul says? Because, dude, look, the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. He goes, that meat belonged to the Lord when it was on the hoof. It's no less the Lord's when it's in the butcher shop. The issue is the atmosphere of the pagan temple. The food isn't the issue. Now, this is even more striking here. Verse 27. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever's set before you, asking a question for conscience sake. Isn't this interesting? Paul says, don't go to the pagan restaurant for dinner. But he doesn't say don't go out to dinner with an unbeliever. He says if an unbeliever invites you into their home and wants you to eat with them, fine. But he goes... Don't sit down at the meat and say, oh, was this sacrificed to an idol? Because I don't know if I can eat it if it was sacrificed to an idol. But don't even ask. Just eat it. Just set it before you. Don't ask and it won't bother you. But notice what he says here. He says, verse 28, But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, and do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you. Okay, let's paint this picture. You go over to dinner at somebody's house and they're not a Christian. And they put before you the meal and they say, um, 
you know what, man, uh, I, I should have thought about this, but you know what? This meat was sacrificed to an idol. Now, you know what that non-Christian's telling you? They're telling you that they think that Christians don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so Paul says, for the sake of that guy, don't eat it. Just don't eat it. Again, the food isn't the issue. It's the heart of the unbeliever. It's the heart of the Christian. It's your own heart. The food is not the issue. Then again, Paul says, look at it here in verse 30. But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Paul says, but listen, man, if I want to eat that, you know, that tri-tip that I got from Zeus Meat Market, nobody better speak evil of me. I gave thanks to God for that food. And the devil didn't make that food, the Lord did. So I'm going to eat it. Now, can I just point out a principle for you that's very important here? Does it seem to you here that Paul's being inconsistent? Some people would say that. Well, you can't eat it here, you can't eat it there, you can't eat it here, you can't eat it there. You know, Paul is not being inconsistent in the slightest way. He's being very consistent according to one principle. Liberty within the limits of love. That's it. You have liberty in Jesus Christ. Now just go out and operate on the principle of love. Love to God and love to others and you'll be fine. Wrap it up here, verse 31 through 33. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, do well, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Friends, here's the concluding principle. You want to know how to put all this in right order? Do all to the glory of God. If the purpose of your life is to see how much you can get away with and still be a Christian, you're not cutting it. But if the purpose of your life is to glorify God, you'll be okay. You know what? If the Corinthians would have just kept this in mind from the beginning, everything would have been fine. So do all to the glory of God and give no offense. Live as an others-centered person wanting to bless and minister to them. Pretty simple. It got complicated somewhere. But you can always bring it back to that simple principle. I'm going to glorify God and I'm going to not give any offense to my brethren. And God will do great things from that. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for worship. Father, we don't want to give our worship to any other God. We want to come and focus on you now, Lord, and, and give you the praise and the honor that you deserve. So help us to pray. Help us to worship you. And Lord, I pray that you would just give people right now a sense of freedom and liberty, that if anybody wants to share a passage of Scripture or an encouragement from you or just pray spontaneously, that Lord, you'd really let us know that we have the liberty to do that in you. Thank you, Lord. Help us to glorify you and worship now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.